So hopefully you found your way to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. We're beginning uh, our study of the book of 2 Samuel. Really, we began in the book of Samuel uh, in September, and we just finished 1 Samuel last week, and now this week we're beginning in 2 Samuel. If you don't remember what happened, right at the end of 1 uh, Samuel, that's going to be tricky, I can tell already. Right at the end of 1 Samuel, at the end of uh, that book, there had been a great battle, and King Saul had lost his life, and all of his sons, save one, had died with him in a great battle. And now we're beginning the book of 2 Samuel is really David's throne being established in Israel. Now, a movie has come out here recently. I don't know if it was this year or last year when it came out. I just recently saw it. It's a movie. It's called Arrival. Arrival. It's a movie about aliens. And you say, well, what's that have to do with anything? Well, nothing really, but I think it's interesting. Uh, it's, um, it's really kind of a hard movie to understand if you've seen it. Uh, you, if you're like most people, you've seen this movie. At the end of the movie, you say, I don't even know what just happened. But it looks like everything worked out, so that's good. <laughs> so I gave away the ending. Everything kind of works out. It's a movie about language and relativity and language and how language might affect our experience of time. And uh, really also some of the major themes of this movie are peace and conflict, a geopolitical peace and geopolitical conflict, and then you add into the mix of geopolitical uh, challenges, aliens. Everything is spiraling out of control in the film, and uh, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. Is, is World War III going to break out or what's going to happen? And one character whispers to another character something in his ear, and it makes everything work out. I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie. There's no sense. I've told you everything works out just fine. But this is the phrase uh, that she whispered, not in English, in Mandarin. I speak it fluently, so obviously I picked up on it right away. I don't. I, I had to Google it. What'd she say? In war, listen, in war there are no winners, only widows. In war there are no winners, only widows. For many of us, we know what that means. The enemy of peace. We're going to be looking at the kingdom of Israel as they're trying to establish uh, rule and they're trying to establish reign and we're moving into a time of civil war. And we're going to look at what the enemies of peace are and the, enemy, uh, and the enemies of peace here in 2 Samuel 1 and 2 are a little bit counterintuitive. You would think, well, of course there's a winner in war. Somebody wins, right? There's a victor, and there's someone who loses. And, and really, it's counterintuitive, but the fact is, at the end of the day, there aren't necessarily winners. There are just those who have suffered more loss than others. And what I want us to think about in terms of organizing our thoughts around 2 Samuel 1 and 2 is two enemies of peace. There's certainly many more. We're just going to look at two. Two enemies of peace. 1 Samuel, that's terrible. 2 Samuel 1. The first enemy of peace is this. This is a little bit counterintuitive, and I'll try and explain it. The first enemy of peace is individual peace. The first enemy of peace in a, a, a family, in a, a family of God, a body of believers, or even a community, is individual peace. And let me explain what I mean by that. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read a very, very interesting story. Uh, King, Saul, King David, I should say, had made his way back to his hometown of Ziklag, which was in the territory of the Philistines. And he had been there a couple of days trying to get their affairs in order. If you remember, the Amalekites had destroyed it. 
And so they're trying to get everything in order, and a, a man comes into his camp, having journeyed three days' journey by foot from the battlefront where Saul had died. And this man comes to David, and his clothing is torn, and there is ash and dirt on his head, which would indicate he's very sad. In those times, you would rip your clothes and throw dirt or ash onto your head to indicate you were in mourning. And he came to David, and he fell on the ground before David, it says, and he paid David honor. And David said, where have you come from? Which would be a, an expected question for somebody dressed as he was and in his appearance. And he says this in verse 3 of 2 Samuel 1, I have escaped the Israelite camp. Many have died. Saul and Jonathan are dead. We're there in this passage. The moment David finds out Saul and his best friend Jonathan are gone. And David said, how do you know this happened? And this, this man says, listen, I was there. I was on Mount Gilboa where Saul and his sons were. And I happened upon Saul and he was leaning upon his staff having been mortally wounded. And the Philistine chariots and swordsmen and cavalry were coming upon us. And Saul called out to me. And he said, come here. And, and of course, I went to King Saul and said, what should I do? And, and King Saul told me to kill him because he was mortally wounded. And he, did, he, he knew he was going to die. And, and this guy even says, listen, I looked at him, David. He was dying. He was right there. So I stood beside him and I killed him. I knew he was going to die. And I took off of his head, his crown, and off of his arm, this golden ring, and I have brought them to you, and he hands them to King David. And David and all of his men, in that moment when they heard it, they grabbed their clothes, and they ripped them, and they mourned, and they were weeping. And all day, for that day, they ate no food, and they fasted until evening. Later on, David calls the gentleman before him again, and he says, where are you from? And he says, listen, I'm a foreigner, but I'm from Israel, but I am the son of an Amalekite. And David said, why, listen, verse 14, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? I don't know if you remember from last week when we were in 1 Samuel, the end of the chapter, do you remember Saul did command his, his armor bearer to kill him? Do you remember that? He says, kill me because... Uh, I don't want the Philistines to torture me and mistreat me, so kill me. And what did the armor bearer do? Nothing. He was too afraid to because he had actually had the scruples to know you don't raise your hand against the king of Israel even at his command. And this Amalekite had no fear of that. So David called one of his men and he said, go strike this Amalekite down. And he did. And he killed that Amalekite right where he stood because he raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. And David said this, this is verse 16, your blood be on your own head. Your mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Now, I don't know if this Amalekite actually killed King Saul or not. I suspect he did not. What I think this Amalekite did was he was present when King Saul died or had just died, and he grabbed his crown and his armband and made his way to King David, and he thought, the current king is dead. I really need to be good friends with the new king. Why would that be the case? Because he's an Amalekite. He would be persona non grata for David and his men. In fact, David had just returned from wiping out 
an Amalekite raiding party, and so he devises this brilliant plan. I can tell King David I killed his mortal enemy. He'll be so excited. This Amalekite was a little bit ill-informed about David's personal opinion regarding King Saul. If you'll remember, during the time that David was fleeing King Saul, he had at least two occasions where he could have killed King Saul himself, right? And he said, no, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. In fact, he even confessed it as sin that he had cut the corner off of King Saul's robe. And so this Amalekite, thinking he had gained favor with the king by killing the king's enemy, miscalculates and receives on his own head the judgment of raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. This Amalekite was seeking his own personal individual peace. He had a problem, didn't he? Everywhere he lived, everybody was at war with him because he was an Amalekite. And he had to figure out, how do I uh, get peace of mind? How do I secure my reward? How do I secure a place in this new kingdom? I will, I will secure my peace and my reward through the new king, King David. And how am I going to uh, secure my peace through King David? Well, I'm going to be very pragmatic. I'm going to deal with King David's enemies, and then he will owe me his allegiance and, he, and his thanks. He didn't understand, though, this was not going to create peace. All it was going to create was more hardship for him. He sought his own individual peace to the exclusion of others, and the result was judgment on his own head. David, on the other hand, did not seek to gain anything through Saul's death. Look again with me at 2 Samuel 1.14. It's important to see this. David asked him, the Amalekite, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David wasn't seeking Saul's death. David had been assured by God that he would sit on the throne of Israel. David didn't need King Saul to die to do so. Why? Because God was in charge of when and how King David would sit on that throne, right? So King David was not thinking pragmatically or practically how, about how to obtain what he felt was necessary. He saw the Lord's anointed, and there is one person who can kill the Lord's anointed. Who is that? That would be the Lord. I don't think the Amalekite was God. He presumed as such, and so the Amalekite killed him to be pragmatic. David, on the other hand, didn't do uh, very many things that were practical or pragmatic at all in First and Second Samuel. He was not seeking to gain through Saul's death. David understood something that I think we often miss. Gaining my own peace and my own reward to the exclusion of others is not peace, nor is it reward. To gain what I think I am owed by taking it from someone else will not gain me what I actually want. Let me put it this way, knowing what God has told us about King David, is David was a man after God's own heart. Do you remember that? David is a man after God's own heart. And so what David would say is, I'm not seeking to gain reward. I am seeking to gain what? God. For David, the reward is God himself. 
David wants to, to gain nothing through Saul's death. What David would prefer, as we see he does it imperfectly over the balance of his life, is not to gain the throne or to gain uh, influence or money or reward, but his, his goal is in his life, uh, moment by moment, to gain God. To say, how do I in the moment right now uh, live with and as a part of what God is doing? David seeks God as reward. He doesn't see God merely to gain something else. And this is what the Amalekite is doing. He sees David as God's representative. And I'm going to seek David, not because I want David's God, but because I want David's influence and his power and his money. David seeks God as reward and not seeking God merely to gain some other reward or some other influence. The Amalekite might say it this way. I want what the king wants as long as the king gives me what I want. We could say it another way. I want what God wants, of course. Who doesn't want what God wants, right? That is, as long as God gives me what I want. Maybe I could say it another way for David. David wanted what God wanted, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, David wanted what God wanted to his own detriment. Would it benefit David that Saul would be dead? Well, certainly. But David desired more the heart of God, even when it cost him, even when it was to his detriment. David sought the purposes of God, whereas the Amalekite sought his own individual peace and his own individual reward. So he would seek God, but that seeking of God would stop as soon as it cost him anything. God was only interesting to him. The purposes of God through King David were only interesting to him as long as there was some secondary benefit. And as soon as those benefits dried up, or worse yet, as soon as there was a cost associated with seeking this God, uh, I'm out. God, uh, through David, was showing us something different. He's saying uh, David wanted to seek God's purposes even to his own detriment. If David was seek, simply seeking his own intentions and desires, he would have killed Saul, Saul long ago. The enemy of peace is seeking my own individual peace to the exclusion of others. That is, seeking what God wants as, as long as it only benefits myself. I'm not really concerned what happens to anyone around me. Here's a question we might ask ourselves. I don't know, maybe you could ask yourself this question. Do you know what God wants? You say, well, if I knew what God wants, that'd be, that'd be very helpful. Then I would do it, right? But I think we do know what God wants, especially as it's revealed in His Word. We know what His mission is. What's His mission? To seek and save the lost by the power of Christ, dead, buried, and resurrected. Uh, we, we know what God's purpose is, is to show His love primarily through the redemptive work of Christ, but also through His people showing love to one another and the community around us. We know God intends to make Himself known in all of His glory, both through His love through Christ and one day establishing His kingdom on this, in this world. So I, I think we have an idea of what God wants. But here's what I think we often sometimes forget to ask. We know what God wants, but do we know how God wants what he wants? This is what we discover through David. Oftentimes, God uh, intends not only to provide us, here's what I want to do, I want to do something in and through you to your detriment. Now, you're wishing you would have stayed home this morning. 
God wants to do His work through His people, not merely for our benefit. What is the benefit we gain by having the work of God in our lives? What's the benefit we gain? We gain God Himself. We gain permanent residence uh, in the family of God, in the royal priesthood. And we say, well, that sounds nice. I'll look forward to that in heaven, but God, what's the payoff today? I mean, what's the return on investment here? And God says, no, this is what's really cool, and you can read Romans 8 if you want a a scripture for this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work through you to your detriment oftentimes in this life, and your reward will be gaining me in the future. It's hard to have the peace of God and experience the peace of God in the people of God when our primary concern is our own peace and our own reward. Especially when the economies of God's work in our lives and in His people is generally to do His greatest work through us against our own particular agendas and desires. One way to think about this, and then we'll move on to uh, the other chapter is uh, Christian people, and I think this is good, we generally are principled people. You know what it means to be principled? We have a principle? No, 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 that's not what it means. It means we have ideas and values that guide our thinking and our actions. Generally, it's best, it goes without saying, if those principles we have might be informed by Scripture on occasion. But here's what happens. Here's where our principles or being principled can get sideways. We have a context in which we live in. We have a a place in which we call home, a a culture in which uh, we live, and we live within a particular culture, and in that culture we're informed by the Scripture, and and so therefore we we learn over time to have principles around uh, the kind of clothing we wear, the ways in which we parent our children, the kinds of things we do for fun and recreation. Maybe the kind of music we listen to. So we generally will look at principles and truths in the Scripture which affirm those things which are already true about us based on our context, the kind of clothes we wear, the way we like to parent our children, and the the way we have fun and the kind of music we listen to. And so we have these principles that tend to affirm people, guess what, that are just like us. We have principles uh, which say this is how a person ought to live. Here's how Christian life ought to look. And on occasion, every now and again, again, we take principled stands against people who are in God's family. I can't believe a Christian would dress like that. I can't believe a Christian would listen to country music. Well, that's serious. That is serious. That's a problem. (laughs) We really need to get on that. I can't believe a Christian would, would do that for fun. I, don't think, I didn't think Christians were allowed to do that. I, I thought that was, that was bad. I didn't know Christians could listen to that kind of music. I, how are they, I, Christians should, should parent this way. Christians should school their children this way. Christians should have a marriage that looks a particular way. There's a verse over in 1 John, 1 John 2.20. You can turn there if you want, or you can just write it down and check me later. 1 John 2.20 says this, But you, Christian, have an anointing from the Holy One. What? Christian, what are you? Anointed. And all of you know the truth. 
how did David cast judgment upon the Amalekite? What do you say? How could you raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? How could you raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? So we take principal stands uh, based on what we think people ought to look like in the family of God or what, the, uh, uh, what church ought to look like or what we ought to do here on a Sunday morning or how people ought to live or uh, how they should express their faith. And we're not making biblical stands, we're making principled stands. The Bible is our authority, not our uh, principles when they're outside of the realm of God's authority, His Word. And we stand and we accuse of fellow believers because we don't think they should do those kinds of, they shouldn't dress that way, that kind of music is evil and I can't believe they do that for fun. Or wait, they're having fun? Christians aren't supposed to have fun. I mean, fun within reason. And be grumpy most of the time because that's where you know you're really having fun God's way. A principled, even a principled stand against a child of God, listen, is a stand against God himself. Because what we're trying to do is establish our own peace to the exclusion of the peace of others. And sometimes we make our principles when they only have a loose connection with Scripture as our God instead of God himself. A principled stand against a child of God is a stand against God himself. Listen, I'll make, give you two examples of this. Satan has one job right now. What's his job? To stand before God and tell God all of the things that are wrong with you. And he is really good. Right? He lets you win on it every now and then too, and you can hear it. Jesus has one job right now. What's his full-time job? To stand before God and tell him how awesome you are because he did a work for you. Now my question is, when you want to take a stand against a child of God, which one of those two people do you want to stand with? The one who accuses other believers or the one who affirms the righteousness of other believers? Jesus stands and, get this, makes advocation for you, again, to his own detriment. Because remember, for everything he has to advocate for you, he had to pay for it. One of the enemies of peace in the body of Christ, in our, in our families, in our community, is seeking peace on my terms. Instead of seeking peace in the body of Christ or in my family or in my community, to my detriment. And that's the kind of peace David was seeking. And as we will see in a minute, that is the kind of peace Jesus paid for. The enemy of peace is individual peace. All right, First Samuel, that's terrible. Second Samuel chapter 2. Which book are we in? Second Samuel chapter 2. If the first enemy of peace was individual peace, that's pragmatic peace uh, to the exclusion of others, the second enemy of peace we're going to see here in Second Samuel chapter 2 is conquering peace. So in the course of time, David, who was living in Ziklag, inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to the towns of Judah? And the Lord said, yeah, go on up there. And he says, where should I go? And the Lord says, go up to Hebron. So David makes his way up to Hebron. We're going to discover later that David began his reign in Israel, in the city of Hebron, and he reigned there for seven, seven and a half years or so. So he lived there for a considerable uh, period of time. 
Now, Abner, who was King Saul's general, didn't want David to be king because Abner wasn't a general for David. He was a general for King Saul. And so Abner appointed King Saul's surviving son, Ish-bosheth, to be king. And the Bible actually tells us that when he was made king, he was made king of all of Israel. So we have Ish-bosheth. Don't name your kid that. Unless you don't like teachers. <laughs> They're gonna spend... Anyway, um, he made him king. So he is really king of all of Israel, and David is merely, he goes to Hebron, and he becomes king of only the tribe of Judah. Because remember, King David is of the tribe of Judah, and so that was kind of his hometown crowd. And so King David is the king of one tribe, and Ishbosheth is the king of everything else. There was a war that went on between the house of Saul and the house of David because of these two competing kings. It was a civil war. If you look at, with me down at verse 8, Abner had taken Ishbosheth and made him king, and he called up Joab, King David's general, and he said, come, let's meet together. We've got a deal. Let's, let's figure this thing out. And so they meet together at the a pool, a very, very deep pool, and they've all got their armies, and, and Abner says to Joab, I've got an idea. Instead of us killing one another, I'll pick 12 guys, you pick 12 guys, they'll have a knife fight. See, some of you guys thought the Bible was boring, didn't you? You're just reading the wrong parts. They're going to have a knife fight, and whoever wins, wins, right? That seems to make sense. 12-12, whoever has the most left standing at the end of the knife fight will win. What happens? All 24 guys come together, each one grabs each other, they all stab each other at the same time. All 24 die. It's unbelievable. What are the odds? And so then a giant fight breaks out. There was a tremendous battle between the, the army of Abner, loyal to Saul's family, and the army of Joab, the, which is the army of the king of Israel, and the army of Abner, Saul's army, is badly defeated, and they run and they're fleeing. They're fleeing from the battle because they were losing. Abner had to run, and he was being chased by Azahel. Azahel was fast. He was really fast. In fact, the Bible says Azahel was a fleet, as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. I don't even know how fast that is. That's Usain, Usain Bolt fast is what that is. Probably had gold shoes on. So he was chasing Abner, and he wasn't turning to the right or to the left. He was chasing after him, and Abner is yelling out to him, Is that you, Azahel? And Azahel has two brothers, one of whom is Joab. And Abner says, Turn, go fight one of the other guys, because how will I ever look your brother in the face again if we were to fight and I was to kill you? And Azahel wouldn't turn to the right, and he wouldn't turn to the left. He was going to get Abner. And as he's getting closer and closer, Abner turns and stops and takes the butt of his spear and hits him in the stomach. Forgetting his own strength and forgetting the speed of Azahel, the spear goes all the way through him. I don't think Abner meant to kill him. You, if you wanted to kill him, you would have used the business end. And Azahel falls dead and Abner runs away. And as everybody is running by, they realize Azahel is dead. Everybody goes, oh man, Joab's going to be ticked. And he was. But also the brutality of his death was stunning. You could imagine what that scene would have looked like. 
And so they all pursued and kept pursuing. And finally, the two armies were on two different hills. And Abner begins yelling out to Joab, Joab, how long will we feed the sword? And they uh, come up with a truce uh, in some senses, and they all return back to their various leaders. And they bury Azahel in the tomb of his family in Bethlehem. How was Azahel trying to seek peace in Israel? In his mind, what was the answer? How is peace accomplished in Israel? If Abner dies, if Abner's dead, there will be peace. He sought to have peace by conquering his enemies, by, by destroying his foes. He wanted to gain, uh, through his king David, uh, might and power. And this actually makes good sense. If you're a, you're a kingdom, how do you uh, obtain peace for your kingdom? Well, you, you destroy your enemies. And if, if David is king and Abner is dead, there will be peace, won't there? Absolutely not. How did David seek uh, the establishing of his kingdom? Read again verse 1. In the course of time, listen, David inquired of the Lord, should I go up to Judah? I mean, King Saul's dead. Does David say, oh, let's move it out, man. The king's dead. It's time to take up residence in the palace, right? He doesn't do that. He says, God, should I go up to Judah? And God says, yeah, you should go up there. So how is David having peace? By being in the midst of the purposes of God. Does David go up to Gibeon where Saul's uh, capital was to take over the, the kingdom? No, he doesn't. He goes to Hebron. David knew and understood he would gain nothing through the civil war that was occurring in Israel. He, he knew the way to peace was not through conquering his foes, but through the work of God in the kingdom and through his life. While Azahel was seeking peace through conquering and victory, David was seeking peace through seeing the work of God done. In fact, he, David would say this, in seeing the work of God done, even in going up to Hebron and ruling over the little tribe of Judah, we have, we have experienced victory because we're in the purposes of God. David finds victory in knowing God, not knowing God in order to find victory. And that order is very important. Did you hear what I said? David finds victory in knowing the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord so that he can find victory. Azahel probably would say it a different way before he found the business end of a spear. I want peace and I want unity as long as peace and unity are arrived at by the other people finally seeing it my way. I know none of us have ever said anything like that before. Yes, I want peace. Yes, I want unity. As long as everybody realizes for the, finally we'll realize how right I am. Then we can have peace and unity. David would say this, I want what God wants to my detriment. Why did David go to Hebron? Because that's where God told him to go. Where should he have gone? The capital. And he should have killed all of Saul's family. He should have killed all of his advisors. He should have wiped everybody out. That's how they do it. That's how it's done. And establish his kingdom. But he says, no, no, no. I find victory by finding out what God's into, and I do that. I want what God wants to my detriment. Versus Azahel, who says, I want peace and unity. By Abner finally figuring out he lost, we won. 
earlier I asked this, do you know what God wants? I'm going to ask that same question a little bit differently. Do you want what God wants? There's a big difference between knowing what God wants and wanting what God wants. A guy said it this way in an article this week, talking about obedience to Jesus. He said he makes his kids eat asparagus, which as you might expect, they don't like. And he said, what would it be like if one day, one night, the kid said, listen, okay, Dad, we're eating the asparagus, you know, one bite, six cups of water, one bite. And what if I, the dad says, you know, listen, kids, I'm, I'm over it. I don't want you to just eat the asparagus. I want you to love it. I mean, and the kids are going to be like, well, you're out of your mind. This is what God is asking us to do. He's not asking us to merely know what we want. He actually is wanting us to want what he wants. Want it in the, the way that he wants it. It's not simply knowing what God's purposes are, but understanding how God's purposes are done. Let me put it this way. In your family and in your church and in your community, God's purpose is not possible in your conquering, in your winning, even if you're right. Because God's purposes are not done that way. If God's purposes must be done through conquering, even being right is wrong at that point. Because God's purposes are not accomplished, as we'll show in just a minute, through conquering and winning. If we see our purpose uh, is to do God's work by beating his foes, we must understand we're not doing God's purpose. And we have to ask this question of ourselves if that's the case. Do I really want God's purpose in my family or in my church or in my world? Or do I just want my way? That's what Asahel wanted. He just wanted his way. It was sort of convenient that God's purpose was to make David king. And so Asahel wanted to make David king his way. Do we want God's purpose or do we want our own way? Well, hopefully we would say we want God's purpose. Hopefully we would say we want God's purpose. Are we in? Okay, yeah, wakey, wakey. Are we in? We want God's purpose? Okay, here's God's purpose then. Unity. Unity to your detriment. Unity at your cost. Love and unity in the body of Christ, love and unity in your family, love and unity in your community at cost to you where you don't get what you want. There's God's purpose. Remember Jesus in the garden, Matthew 26? Jesus went and he was praying. Verse 39, going a little further, Jesus fell on his face to the ground. He prayed, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. What did Jesus want? for this cup to be taken from him. He didn't want to die on the cross uh, in his uh, in experience of that suffering. But he says this, not as I will, but as you will. He went back a second time. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken from me, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Not my desire to avoid pain and discomfort and rejection. Now, not my will in that moment, God, but Father, your will that this cup will be drank deeply.
Jesus sought the purpose of God, the unity of the believers, the unity of faith through his sacrifice at his own detriment. Compare that with the Amalekite. He sought God's purpose, David's purpose for his own benefit. Jesus abandoned in that moment all benefit. I wonder if you've ever asked this question about Jesus before he died. Why didn't he conquer Rome and the religious elite and then go to the cross? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Eleven disciples are with him. He says, guys, strap on a sword. It's time to get it on. What are we going to do? We're going to conquer Rome. I'm going to destroy the religious elite. And then when I've handled my business, I'll go to the cross. It'll be awesome. So everybody will know how awesome I am. All of your enemies will be gone. And then I'll still take care of the cross thing. Don't worry about it. Have you ever noticed he doesn't do that? That in fact, he, he leaves Rome in place for many, many, many years. And the religious elite remain in place, at least till AD 70, when Rome destroys Jerusalem. Another movie reference, if you don't mind, a movie that came out many years ago. It's called The Matrix. Of course, these aren't recommended movies. If you watch them and you're offended, that's your problem, not mine. At the end of the third Matrix, it has a redemptive theme, as many movies do, because the redemptive story is so compelling. And the, the star of, of, of the, the main character, Neo, he ends up dying at the end so that uh, the great machines are uh, destroyed. He dies at the end uh, so that no one else has to. It sounds very redemptive, doesn't it? But what happens just before he dies in the end? He kills all his enemies. An epic fight scene. It's a really cool fight scene. Because that's what we want. We want a redeeming, conquering, humble hero who also is, is manly and tough and because that's what we want to be. We want noble humility. That is, I humbly destroy my enemies in front of me. We don't want what Jesus came doing, which was not noble humility. It was what, according to Philippians chapter 2? Humiliation. Shame. Embarrassment. Being made lower than anyone else on purpose because that's a part of what God was doing and that's how his work was done. Unity to our detriment. Not where we see God's will just because we find it convenient or beneficial to our lives. We seek God's will to our detriment, as Christ did and as David did. Not seeking the purposes of God just because there's a noble humility in following the, the unselfish guidelines of Christian principles. No, it's unity to our detriment where we are humiliated as our Christ was. And as David was, instead of moving on the throne, he instead moves to Hebron. Unity and peace at my detriment and to my detriment. Why? Why? Because that's what Jesus is like. Because that's what our Savior is like. And He wants to be with us. And He wants us to be like Him. I'm going to let you in on a little something about church and about your own family. Finding something wrong in your church body or finding something wrong in your home and your family, that's a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? I mean, that's not hard. This room is, in fact, full of people. 
You're saying, what are you talking about? I can find something wrong with my row. I don't even need the whole church here. That is not complicated. You don't get gold star for being able to find out something is wrong in the church. Congratulations. I don't mean this uh, disrespectfully. That's kind of obvious. People showed up. I was here this morning early. Nobody was here. That's, it was perfect, except I showed up, and then it was ruined. Finding fault, finding something that was wrong, uh, deciding I want to take a principled stand, deciding there's something wrong with somebody or something is the real simple job. That's the easy job, uh, but guess what? Satan already has that job sort of wrapped up. And this is the only way I could come up with saying this, so I apologize for you grammarians. Seeking Jesus-y unity in spite of all that stuff, that's weird. He said, well, how am I supposed to, you hear what I say? Seeking Jesus-y unity in spite of all that stuff you see, that's weird. And the world says, what's with that? Because anybody can show up and find out what's wrong. It takes Jesus-y unity informed by humiliation, informed by a seeking peace to my detriment, seeking a desire in our own hearts to be like Christ in unity. And the world looks at that and says, what is that all about? This is what it says in John 17. We're going through John 17 on our Wednesday night services at 6.45, and yes, it's a shameless plug. If you haven't come yet, be sure to come out. Jesus says this, John 17, verse 20, My prayer is not for them, his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be of the same political party, I may have misread that. I want to make sure you're paying attention. Did I read that? All right. That all of them may enjoy this, the same kind of music on Sunday mornings. And now it's getting real. That all of them will struggle with sin, but none of the rated R ones, only PG-13 sins. What's he say? Now I got your attention that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, people who have all the same interests and get along well, that's not complicated. That's called the Elks Lodge. A bunch of people who are messed up and have all kinds of issues who are unified anyway because they want peace and unity at their detriment because that's what their Jesus is like. That's weird. And the world goes, there's something going on there. The enemies of peace, individual peace. As long as I'm okay, everything's fine. That doesn't work in the body of Christ. Peace comes when we have peace in Christ and we mutually and agree with one another to seek peace at our own detriment. Second enemy of peace is conquering peace. And that's where we finally have peace when everybody else figures out I was right all along. And that's not how the body of Christ works. The body of Christ says we want unity to our detriment. We want unity in the midst of humiliation. Why? Because that's what Jesus is like. And we gain him uh, through faith. We gain him and the joy of his fellowship as we live like he lived.